Hey folks, Jared here. We find ourselves amidst regional strategies week here at SimSec, so we do what anyone would do in that situation, and we brought in an Austrian navalist, Dr. Jeremy Stoes, to discuss European naval procurement. I want to preface the episode with our usual disclaimer that all opinions are our own and not representative of any institutions with which we might otherwise be associated. I also want to advertise for Project Triton's Next Challenge, our fiction contest in concert with the U.S. Naval Institute. We've assembled an all-sarcastic judges, and submissions are due 30th of September. You can find more information on our website at simsec.org. Finally, and as always, we want to advertise and strongly recommend our friends in the SimSec Podcast Network and our second podcast feed, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex and friends positively vibrating after consuming too much iron brew on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever else you download your podcasts. It's a more low-key, slightly less serious approach to current events in the maritime domain and naval history. Check them out wherever you download your podcasts. With that, I'll turn it over to Kimber's men. by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shipmates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. Our topic today is European naval procurement, and we have one of the foremost European navalists as guests, Dr. Jeremy Stoes, Deputy Director of the Austrian Center for Intelligence, Propaganda, and Security Studies, and non-resident fellow at the Center for Maritime Strategy and Security at the Institute for Security Policy at Keele University. Jeremy, welcome. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Jeremy, before we even get into the segment, I'll start with a question. How does an Austrian become a researcher in naval matters? Uh, that's a good question, a frequently asked question that I'm happy to answer. As uh, as a matter of fact, I'm both Austrian and American, so I have an American citizenship. My mom's from, from the States, and she moved to Austria in the 1980s, and therefore, you know, sometimes I put on my American cap, and I'm... Uh, the global superpower, if you will. And then if I want to switch sides and play devil's advocate, I put on my neutral Austrian hat. So that's always a fun, fun role to play. But in all seriousness, I've been interested in security issues and defense issues, if you will, from a very young age onwards. Also, thanks to my, my parents who have a large collection of books, of articles. They, my parents built a library for themselves. My mom was both patient and had the perseverance to teach me English, not only to speak English, but also to read and write, which is not that easy with a kid, you know, <laughs> living in Austria and learning German, you know, uh, as my, my father tongue, if you will. So I have to thank her for that. And of course, also my dad, who was very inter interested in military affairs and defense affairs. And I have all the literature that I from soaked up from a young age, age onwards. And then um, later on, I, I joined the police, uh, was a police officer uh, on, on, uh, on the front lines, if you will, in Austria, if you want to call it that. And later on, then started studying, uh, studied history because I was interested, interested in history a lot and then also English. And at that point in time, there's a small center, which I'm in Graz, in my hometown, which I'm priv privileged to work at, at and with. And uh, through this Austrian Center for Intelligence and Propaganda and Security Studies, I was able to research and discuss and write about topics that interested me. And at one point, I was working on, it, it was the time of the pivot, rebalancing U.S. Um, foreign policy towards Asia-Pacific. And I was very interested in, the, in those fields in, the, in, this, in this area. And then I realized, well, there are a lot of smart, smart people out there who know that topic much better than I do. So I should maybe look at some other maritime developments. And I realized there's no comprehensive overview of uh, what 
what actually uh, European navies have been doing the last decades. So I wrote a master thesis on the development of European naval forces, which then I turned into a book. And when it was, or during that process, I realized, ah, there's much more to that. And I then was looking for PhD positions and met Dr. Sebastian Bruns, who's a very good friend of mine and a colleague and was my boss for many years. And I moved up to Kiel, to northern Germany, with uh, the Center for Maritime Strategy and Security at the Institute for Security Policy at Kiel University. And there, then I wrote my PhD on, again, European naval power, but this time from a different vantage point. Uh, also, again, strategy, force structure, and operations, how the different countries in Europe over the last 30 years or 40 years, if you will, how they dealt with the changes in the security environment and so on. So I also always say just a brief, briefly that as an Austrian, we don't have access to the sea, but we're, we're dependent on the free trade on, on the sea. And in a globalized world, there's no state who can really, that can really yeah, not have any interest in the maritime domain. And we already have uh, Austrian special forces have been deployed on EU missions on German naval vessels and the, the exercise with the German Navy from submarines and so on. So there is more and more interest also in Austria uh, on what's going on on the, on the oceans and on the sea. Thank you. Yeah, when I was teaching up at the Führungs Academy in Hamburg, we would occasionally get an Austrian student in the uh, naval group or a Swiss student in the naval group. Mm -hmm. And I was always uh, a little curious about what exactly the, they were planning to do on the Gemsee. Uh, but, uh, let's start with your book, The Decline of European Naval Forces, Challenges to Sea Power in an Age of Fiscal Austerity and Political Uncertainty. And for the listener, we'll provide a link to that in the show notes. You can go check it out. I'm sure the primary driver for the decline was the end of the Cold War, but what other factors influenced the decline that you reference? Yes, thanks for that question. I mean, the, the primary driver, as you say, was the end of the Cold War and, you know, uh, states wanting and governments wanting to cash in the peace dividend, save money on defense, which is uh, a usual or common process after you know wars occur, and that is quite common in history. That then, once uh, there is peace, that you focus on other things than developing advanced weapon systems and deploying them, and so on and so forth. Maybe a caveat here: the decline, of course, is somewhat sim somewhat simplistic. I might want to say, and you know, you might want to rightfully criticize me for using this platform-centric point of view that I take in my book because the number of vessels not necessarily correlates with capabilities. It is not necessarily, it doesn't represent maybe the best measurement of naval power, something, of course, my American colleagues will probably attest to and, 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 and agree with, in particular in this whole discussion about the 350-ship Navy with the U.S. Navy. What do you count in, in those 350 ships? At the same time, of course, a size has a quality of its own. I think it was the CNO Admiral Richardson who, re who a couple of years ago wrote about um, or made that point that size matters where you can be, uh, that, you know, how many ships you have also gives you the opportunity to, to be in more places at the same time. Also for um, diplomacy reasons, you know, naval diplomacy is very important to have capabilities to be you know, to be present physically, because if you might have a maritime patrol aircraft or even you know, a satellite, uh, a pirate off the Somali coast won't be deterred by a satellite. He doesn't even know is there. So you need you need assets. So I would say that that, that vantage point or that that the prism of 
uh, platforms is important to look at. You want to maybe add a couple of other parameters, or you should, including tonnage capabilities. But in times like these, where you know modern combat systems, radar, missiles, and so on, uh, are you all classified? You don't have that data in, in, in capabilities. We live in a period of time where we have not seen war at sea between you know a pow- great powers or between nation states. Last one in a last larger conflict, if you will, with the Falklands War, and even that was a you know a maritime task force against an, an aerial threat, if you will. So there's we live in a theoretical space where we have to draw our conclusions from. So still, in terms of deterrence and uh, uh, signaling interest and, and capability, ships and the size of your forces and airplanes and so on, aircraft and so on do matter. So that is this one vantage point and the key driver in the post-Cold War period was saving money on on capabilities or on on, a number of vessels. But at the same time, techflation is, of course, a a key driver behind that, namely that the more complex technology becomes, at the same time as it gets more expensive, states cannot afford as many systems. Therefore, those systems get more expensive again. And we see this problem during the post-Cold War period for more and more states that they cannot or have a very, it's very difficult to afford a broad range of capabilities or capability, I should say, in, in significant numbers. And then maintain a high, a high degree of readiness that costs a lot. And of course, the overhead for personnel is also extremely high. So this is maybe the second driver is techflation, is the increasing complexity of modern military equipment and in particular naval vessels and naval, uh, naval uh, forces are extremely expensive, be it submarines or surface combatants or you know things like that, maritime patrol aircraft. And therefore, smaller states have that problem that they cannot afford it anymore. And then you have an increasing decline in, in the numbers. So that's that's maybe the second reason. So is it fair or accurate to say that the trend has slowed, if not reversed, since 2014? Yes, I I, I would maybe to your that goes in together with your previous question. Although I, in my book I write about the general decline of European naval forces, and there that is clear that the numbers have declined, certain capabilities have declined or had declined. Prior to 2014, there are, were certain states that actually increased their capability. There are several states w- w- in, in different periods of time, they were able to acquire, procure, develop capabilities, naval capabilities that, that gave them greater capability compared to other states, re- relative to other states in globally or also compared to a time period before. So a um, good example would be Spain for would be a good example. Prior they prior to the end of the Cold War, they were, were very much dependent on the U.S. to provide more or less everything in terms of ships and so on and so forth. And then during the 1980s and into the 1990s, they were able to develop the shipbuilding and the defense industry, naval defense sector, to such a degree that they were actually able to, with you know uh, the help from the U.S. in terms of technology, but First, build their own ships, uh, license, you know, uh, according to U.S. designs. The aircraft carrier Principe de Asturias being a great example of, you know, this this American uh, sea control ship that uh, under Admiral Zumwalt was developed to carry Harrier uh, aircraft. The uh, the Spanish built that, and to to also build their own version of the Oliver Hazard Perry class. Uh, so to their needs, if you will. And then after that, even having more capability to then build their 
first domestically designed frigate, which is the F-100 class or Alvaro de Bazan. So you see that during this period of time, the Spanish Navy, for example, increased its capability, if you will, compared to other states. The Turkish Navy would also be an example. That is one thing that you have to keep in mind that, it does, of course, we have very many different, com- a lot of different countries in Europe. And at the same time, uh, I would agree, however, that this downward trend, generally speaking, slowed or was arrested in and around 2014 after the illegal annexation of Crimea. So you see investments being made again um, after this nadir, if you will, in 2014, the investments by the individual states, by NATO, and then the EU also trying to increase the capabilities or, and, the, and the assets that they have. But I might want to add that nobody is suggesting that European navies need to entertain the same degree, relative degree of capability as they did at the height of the Cold War. Uh, that is something that we have to be, be, be aware of, that the threat we currently face in Europe, I might want to say, perceived threat and the actual threat is, is, no, is, not, is, is not the same as it was 1970 or 1980. So that is important to look at. On the other hand, we have global threats and global challenges that might require European navies to deploy further abroad. South China Sea would be an example, but also you know the Persian Gulf and so on. And to those who, of course, criticize European spending and defense spending on a European level, but also, you know, the individual states again, and Germany is a primary example where there are a lot of critics that say we speak about a military buildup. I would say that we have seen a relatively modest modernization over the last five, six years. And historically speaking, that's also important. If you look at what states throughout the last 500 years, what they have spent or 400 years, what they've spent on defense in times uh, in, in peacetime, in average, we're significantly below those percentages of GDP that states in, in the past have paid in times of peace. So that is definitely an argument against this um, notion that Europe is, you know, up in arms and, and there's a militarization going on and, and, and things like that. I think there's steps being taken to regain capabilities that were lost in the past. But again, also the 2% target figure that NATO has agreed upon. Um, many, many states are not meeting that figure, even in with in, even in, in, in light of COVID-19 and, and the, the decline or the problems, the economic downturn, I should say, that uh, states will face, probably not all too many will meet that 2% benchmark. And many Budgets have remained static over the last years. Spain, again, I don't know why Spain is always coming up, but Spain is a good example for a relatively static and very low percentage of defense spendings in and around 1%. And they will have significant problems in modernizing their naval forces, in particular their carrier air wing looking towards F-35s and so on. But Austria is also a good example, not having a navy, I know, but still uh, Austrian politicians still don't take defense and security matters serious, which is, of course, very troubling to me living here. But you see still several states that don't where the governments don't see the need to invest significantly more. So I think back to the initial question is is has the trend been slowed yes in many places it has been arrested it has been reversed slightly 
there's a focus on readiness. So readiness is very important. Uh, maintaining the numbers of, of, of combatants of, of platforms, increasing the number of personnel, which is not easy. And then also, you know, taking the long view and really trying to, and that will be key in taking the long view and looking down 20, 30 years, what kind of assets do we need? Where is the, where are the trends heading? What are, what, where do we need to invest? Uh, so a lot of challenges out there, I have to say, for, for each, each European state. I don't want to discuss uh, all of Europe from this amorphous American perspective where we just say Europe. So <laughs> help me break it down a little bit. If you're being asked to subdivide European <laughs> naval procurement, how would you do it? Is it strictly national? Are there alliances for platforms or how does it how does it break down? Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the the, the tricky questions, because, of course, I understand from an American point of view, if you say Europe, you always think of this, you know, congla, uh, you know, this this bunch of states that more or less work together and that works the other way around too. Uh, we many people in Europe often say, you know, the people in the U.S. and make no difference between the the states or the regions and so on. And the you know, New York, uh, New York is very different to New Orleans, and you know, Missouri is very different to Alaska. So uh, you you often forget that you have very different laws and very in different places and the same goes for Europe. So each state still is a, a nation state and has its own interests that it re, uh, that it um, seeks to protect and and safeguard. So in terms of procurement, the baseline is that procurement, naval procurement, military procurement is still largely a national issue and, uh, and, and, and an issue of, of you know, a national prestige, um, jobs, influence lobbying you know the lobbying is no less uh, comprehensive if you will than it is in the u.s so you know industry has an influence on, on what is what happens and what is is procured in each european state and beyond that as well so that is important to remember that it is largely national that there are various stakeholders that have varying, varying degrees of influence. Then there are different bi and multinational frameworks. That is also interesting for Europe, of course, that you have different initiatives, different frameworks. You have the EU, you have NATO. Within these, you have separate initiatives. Then you have, for example, the Northern Defense Corporation in Northern Europe that is um, outside of NATO. But uh, and then you have other bi and mini and multilateral arrangements that also influence what is what defense capabilities states think they need. And then, of course, uh, all of the industry behind that, too. But let's start bottom up. Maybe there is an increasing investment in or a trend towards bilateral and multilateral lateral co cooperation. And there are several initiatives within Europe or on the European continent, I should say. A very good example is the Belgian-Dutch cooperation or integration, if you will, because there, is, there are, in my opinion, no two navies that are closer aligned than those two, the Belgian and the Dutch uh, navies. And I would say they are the gold standard in naval cooperation. They uh, operate as the same vessels. They um, have um, um, command and control arrangements. They have um, their exercises together. They, they're both, of course, within NATO. They're both EU states. Um, so this is definitely the gold standard. And I was able to um, get a, a firsthand look at, at how that works. And it was amazing to me to see how the Dutch minesweepers are maintained, main, are undergo maintenance in Belgium and vice versa. The Belgian frigates 
undergo maintenance in the Netherlands. And more or less at the end of the year, they both have a, uh, you know, have, have a bill of how much that costs and then they compare how much the cost. And then uh, so that, that it's really interesting to see how close they can actually co cooperate. And in terms of procurement, because now they're looking towards getting both new minesweepers and new frigates. Again, they're procuring those those capabilities together. And in terms of the new mine mine warfare vessel, I should call it maybe not only minesweeper, but mine warfare or mine countermeasure vessel the belgians have, have the lead and with the frigate uh the dutch have the lead and that just goes to show how that works at the same time and now we're maybe coming up one level from this bottom line is nato of course and nato requirements of the past but as well now nowadays they have a big influence on how these navies have developed and what focus they have it's it's not by chance that belgium is focusing on mine warfare because that was their task during the cold war and it also was part of the task of the of the dutch as it also for the germans of course and many other states but so you see how of course nato also has an influence on that and there are i would say so national level then you have the different uh influences by the from from multinational um organizations if you will And then you have, in terms of defense corporation, you have several projects in the past that are worth noting. One project would be, or one 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 corporation that you see that is very close is between Italy and France for many years, for many decades now already. In particular, after the Cold War, uh, the Italian and the French shipbuilders cooperated in several larger or in large projects in, in particular in, in terms of surface combatants they built the same air defense destroyer more or less really the same air defense destroyer for each navy so for the french and the italian navy they learned their lesson from from that difficult project the brits were part of that too but the brits needed other capabilities in the 1990s and left this it was called horizon project left this project and then the now you have the daring class type 45 air defense destroyer for the bridge which is the similar size and had similar but the more uh, uh, better air defense capability than the italian to the french and the italian and the french they learned their lesson i believe out of this uh, out of this corporation and went on to build the frem which Probably every uh, navalist in the U.S. will now know because the next uh, frigate, American uh, U.S. Navy frigate, will be built based on this Fren design, this multi-mission uh, frigate, European multi-mission frigate. And that was, if you want to call it, they were cousins. So the French, uh, they had similar arrangements, similar hulls, similar size, some some sensors were similar, but at the end of the day, there were you know they they weren't the same ship and. So that that is one one area where um, you can see cooperation, or where you can really see um, what you also mentioned. Uh, really, uh, how should I say? Uh, if you want to subdivide it, you can see this subdivision that there is this French-Italian cooperation that is very strong. But otherwise, I would say a lot of those programs are one-offs where bilateral cooperation made sense at a certain point in time but that might not have had a long-term effect on nations and shipbuilding shipyards and so on cooperating long term maybe one more example is of successful cooperation would be the spanish dutch enforcer design for an a landing platform dock and the two in the 1990s again financial pressures the need to still have capabilities 
uh, and the, um, and know-how that was there made them decide that they would cooperate on these LPDs and each state and each Navy procured two of these LPDs that are very similar. So that shows that this cooperation works between European states and European shipyards and the defense sector, but it's not that I would subdivide it. And one last thought would be that, of course, a lot of European states look towards the U.S. for cooperation because the cooperation with the U.S. in the defense realm has so many other dimensions, including the political dimension. It makes a difference if you buy a Swedish Gripen uh, fighter or if you buy the F-35 just by that political dimension that the purchase of that system and the support and the interoperability that you get and so on and so forth has. So uh, there are several states now uh, as in the last over the last 30 years and before that as well that tend to look to the U.S. for uh, for cooperation in the defense sector. And that, of course, works against European consolidation of the European defense uh, and, and the naval shipbuilding or whatever you want to call it market. So, so how would you describe the shipbuilding infrastructure in Europe then? Well, in two words, state of the art and or in two terms, state of the art and facing challenges. So in, in all seriousness, I believe that the European shipbuilding industry and, the, you know, that's a very general term because there is no such thing as the European shipbuilding industry. It's a shipbuilding industry in Europe. So I would say uh, they they can hold their own globally in many, many areas. They're still, you know, together with Japan, maybe the leader in, in, in conventionally powered or AIP, air independent propulsion submarines. They have very, can develop very advanced sensors, combat systems, radar technology. Look at gun technology, Otomelara, the Italian gun, uh, in, um, gun technology that comes from Italy. Passive countermeasures, electronic countermeasures also strong strong Italian defense sector there. Um, so there are several areas where the European shipbuilding industry can hold its own. There are, of course, the larger the systems get, the more complex the systems get. And then if you need to procure them, then it gets more complicated because individual states are finding it more difficult to build and procure large platforms with all the, you know, with everything that goes with it. So if the U.S., you know, wants to build a new carrier and it costs 15 billion as the, the, the Ford class, uh, Gerald, as, uh, Gerald Ford will cost, the U.S. is willing to pay that. No European state can develop and procure that because that is just too expensive. Just to, to give the American listener an idea of how that much that is, that is more than twice as much as the entire Norwegian defense budget per year is. So that is a lot, a lot of money. So you see that that is that is one of the issues that then when the when the systems get larger and you can't procure them in larger numbers, then they get prohibitively expensive. One note to the European shipbuilding and I would say naval defense industry, because shipbuilding and, and defense industry are also, you know, that the, they're not the same thing. One is, you know, so I would I would say compared to the Cold War or the period of the Cold War and moving up into the 1980s, the European defense sector, naval defense sector, has caught up to the American defense sector and globally in several areas. And that is an interesting point that we often forget nowadays when, of course, we always lament about, lament about how you know, bad things are going. 
if you look at the 1980s where the Americans just got their, you know, the Spy One radar and the Aegis system and 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 the standard missile, and you know, they were above and beyond anybody else. In 1990s, in a period of peace dividend, you know, decline in in defense spending and so on, the European industry, European industry, or industry in Europe, I should say, was able to develop advanced sensor technology, advanced radars, and a, a missile family, the Asta missile family, that is in some areas at least as good as, as the American their American counterparts are. And, and so that is an interesting point to make of how capable, you know, and how ingenious also European defense sector is. And in some areas, like you know, who builds, uh, who who's the largest exporter of, of of conventional conventional submarines? It's still you know the the Germans, for example, but the Italians also do, do a great job, and the and and the French. So they they still have certain areas. But going to the challenges, they face similar challenges as does industry globally, getting the the qualified personnel getting the technicians getting uh, competing with other other sectors also and to a certain extent in europe the problem that um, several states in europe that there is um no willingness or less willingness from the industry to cooperate with the military that is something that i think also the u.s sees now it's it's particular like the darpa having problems cooperating with certain companies in, in 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 silicon valley because you know the military is not always perceived as a as a positive thing so that is one one problem and of course also a saving uh, and 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 declining budgets that have led to uh, and declining the ba- demand national demand for capabilities that have led to problems uh and then now we have covid of course with all, which also has ramifications for the european shipping infra- infrastructure so you've already given us one example of uh, the belgian and dutch navies kind of focusing on mine warfare and their frigates is there a particular direction that european navies are focusing right now is the outsider's perspective is i do see a lot of development of multi-role frigates and maritime patrol aircraft but then the mpa piece may just be me wearing my american hat and seeing you know europeans mm-hmm. buying large quantities of p8s <laughs> yeah well well and you're right they are buying p8 so that is definitely something that goes hand in hand with the focus on asw and so you have you you're making you know you're more or less giving me a perfect segue here into that asw is something that that really a lot of people are jumping on now. So it's it's but it's it's more than just buying the P8s. It's it's the whole spectrum throughout all domains. And it starts with you know hydrographic research and really trying to get more data on the you know what's going on below the surface, going up all the way to space, putting satellites into space, uh, sensor technology, maritime domain awareness, so shore-based radar systems. So that is I think also because we are looking at we are looking at the development and and the threat the potential threat throughout um, all domains and also you know you might not like the word but hybrid warfare in terms of actually threats and challenges beneath the threshold uh, to conflict or to open hostilities so you have to look at those areas as as well and therefore um, hydrographic research sensor technology those are definitely areas that are really where there's a, a great focus on and that often get overlooked in the whole debate about platforms because again what do we look to we look to the p8s being deployed to norway and iceland uh rather than which 
which drone is being developed to 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 map the ocean floor um how often do we read articles now more often but not by far now it doesn't catch the headline uh the headlines i should say in terms of uh surface combatants yes the focus so the the focus is also on asw and multi-purpose surface combatants so Many European states over the last decades have had similar timelines in the acquisition processes of large of large uh, surface combatants. Let's say it that way. So you can see that during the Cold War, end of the Cold War, most of them still had you know ASW, many ASW frigates or destroyers or, or also corvettes. And now the focus then the focus switched to air defense capabilities, which is very interesting that in times where actually the main threat from the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact and its missile slinging systems had passed, European states all or most of them procured air defense combatants, you know, be it the German F-124 Sachsen class, the British with the Daring, the Italian or French with the Horizon class, or Horizonte and Faubin, uh, be it the Dutch with the, the Zeven Provinzen or also the, the Danish, then later on with their Ivo Huitfeld. All of those are actually have really capable combat systems, uh, long-range smart L radar, Thales from the, from the French company Thales, but used to be also... Um, the Dutch company Signalapparaten um, Nederland, uh, which was then bought by Thales. Thales. So you really, that's really interesting to see how that focus on air defense capabilities was actually developed and persisted throughout the 1990s and into the 2000s. And that was one of the ideas behind it was not only do we have the technology and the know-how, but also we have, we want to project forces abroad. And it coincides with, you know, the U.S. strategy of uh, forward from the sea. We need to go abroad to in, to do crisis management. And European states were happy to find something to do rather than, you know, because they didn't have to hunt uh, then Russian submarines anymore because they all were rusting away up in the in in Murmansk. So they had something to justify their work with or their 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 money with that they were receiving and their funding. So they said, hey, we, you know, expeditionary operations. And many jumped on that very quick. Italians, French, French had been abroad more often before already. But you see this trend and projecting power from the sea onto shore and provect, providing air defense capabilities over shore was very important. You know, if you have troops on ground, you want to do that. And it also coincides with with then getting uh, capabilities of sh um, close um, um, what is it called shore bombardment uh, to use it the term I don't know the other term I can't think of it so th that was th that was a focus so now you see it the next iteration of vessels or the next generation of ships that are coming online now are being developed are again ASW because you already have all those air defense capabilities there. So the next generation is largely uh, uh, designed for ASW and it coincides with, with uh, the threat or the perceived threat from Russia. So that is one area where I would say you see this development uh, throughout Europe. OPVs, of course, are getting are again being are important just because there are several states in Europe that are very small and in very limited means. So you need to put something to see and not maybe not a 30 year old French frigate that you have 
purchased secondhand or you know some landed lease or whatever it is called that they used to get it uh, so really getting opvs that have decent sensors on it but also able to put some some missiles on them or something you know they have some offensive capability and not just are they you know, can actually add to potential uh, warfighting scenarios mpas you already mentioned and then we go into those aspects that are more more difficult to grasp not as tangible namely everything that is unmanned sensors and so on and there you see the development increasing development of unmanned systems or platforms i should say be they aerial be they surface or underwater with of course still aerial being the the area where we are, have furthest progressed in, in globally and you see some states like turkey really be, becoming a leader in the production of unmanned aerial aerial vehicles and pushing the envelope in that and also deploying them in Libya. So that is an area where we will see a lot of development now and more or less all the states are uh, setting a putting a focus on that because it's, it's necessary. Rotary wing drones and um, to a certain extent also then shore-based sensor capabilities uh, and and then putting that all t together and connecting that that is of course much more complicated to to address that to to study that to um, also show the capabilities that you have for maritime domain awareness uh, for command and control isr intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance and there is the learning curve is extremely steep still and that is something that to a certain extent goes to show where europeans for the last 10 years have not made significant headway and an interesting example some most listeners won't know that in 2011 during the campaign in, um, against Muammar Gaddafi in Libya the Europeans the Americans led from behind they pr provided some assets and so some critical assets if you will but the Europeans led um, more or less were in the lead of the mission uh, and of the campaign but they didn't have a single they didn't have a single shipborne uh, unmanned system they didn't have any drones on their ships and only when the Americans came uh, they the Americans could provide these capabilities well that was in 2011 it took France eight years eight years to actually integrate fully integrate a drone and a, a rotary wing drone so unmanned helicopter mm -hmm. if you will uh, on one of its ships and one of its it, its assault ships so it took eight years for that to mature and develop so you see those how long it how long that actually takes and how you know if you will how how, how far behind europe and european states are in certain areas compared let's say to the u.s but also maybe to other states that are the, um, making some headway there thanks i'm gonna skip ahead in the program just for a second because you just mentioned this and i, I wanted to discuss germany's uh, procurement strategy here. We've seen two different classes of ship now. That's the 125 class stabilization frigates and mm -hmm. uh, MKS 180 uh, anti-submarine warfare frigates, which the yeah. German Ministry of Defense just agreed to purchase a few months back. And these are functionally purpose-built ships. They're no longer multi-role. They have some minimal anti-air warfare capability, but they're not really comparable platforms to the British, Norwegian, or Spanish destroyers and frigates, which are really multi-role. Do you think this is a trend or an anomaly? Your previous comments lead me to believe that you think this is going to be a new trend. Uh, no, actually not. Maybe I, I, I wasn't clear, you know, or clear enough. I didn't explain it well enough. Also, I would agree with you that the German, the F-125, 
stabilization frigate, Baden-Württemberg class, as as it is called, is, in my opinion, an anomaly. And there are several reasons for that. Interesting enough, and I have the, I've had this argument and or this discussion discussion, <laughs> I should say, with you know my colleagues in the German Navy and and also in our in our community, is that. There's a reason why the Germans have built that ship, and there are several reasons. And it was also a child of its time. And it also goes hand in hand with what I mentioned before, is that this idea during the 1990s and the 2000s of being able to uh, project power abroad, naval power abroad, influence influence other states, influence, have an impact on, on conflict, that it doesn't have spillover effects, that really had an impact also in, in German naval thinking. And there was a significant, or there was a consensus that the German Navy should become an expeditionary Navy, including the, the idea of sea basing. So having capability to really be in the area and to project power onto shore. And there was also the idea um, quite uh, from from a well-developed idea of uh, procuring some form of power projection vessel. Let's call it that way. If it would have been then a landing platform dock or not really an amphibious assault ship, but a landing platform dock. And that never materialized for one reason, um, financial reasons. And the other, of course, political reasons, because projecting power always has something in Germany. It's always um, a difficult issue. And the idea of uh, this F-125 was as a successor to the F-122, which was an ASW frigate developed during the Cold War, uh, the Bremen class, uh, class Bremen class uh, F-122, and it should have, should have been a successor to that. And in the meantime, they had built one F-23, also ASW multi-purpose frigate, then at the F-124, which was an air defense frigate, and now we're at F-125, which should have had the ability to be deployed for a longer period of time, so uh, sustained deployments over long distance away from Germany, be cost-effective, uh, have a wide range of missions, particularly in the stabilization area, so uh, that's why it's also called stabilization frigate, good to support task forces, command forces, special forces, for example, for ev- evacuations, evacuation of German citizens somewhere abroad, and also have a high level of survivability. That is something that the German uh, Navy is always focused on. German industry can really provide uh, vessels that have a high degree of survivability. That was important to them. And over the time, this the ship morphed from having initially there was planned to have a 155 millimeter gun on there, similar to the Sumwald from the German Panzerbitz 2000, which is a, a self-propelled uh, howitzer, to put that on the ship, have long-range fire, and then also to put a multiple launch rocket system. I think that's the name for it. I think the American Army also has it, and the German have it. Have it. And then to have Mark 41 vertical launch systems for air defense capability on there as well. Well, all that, some world is calling here, uh, was was scaled down. And uh, so the 155 was dropped and now it's 127, so five inch. And the multiple launch rocket system was dropped. And then from the Mark 41 air defense capability was, was dropped as well. And we end up with this ship, which is a fine ship, has a great combat system, is very good 
has um, multi-mission uh, modules that it can deploy rapid, rapidly inflatable boats, and it's quite a large vessel, and so on and so forth, but only has point air defense, so it only has ram launchers and, and fore and aft, so very limited air defense capability. And of course, in times like these, now where the ship is coming online and being, you know, uh, has been introduced, you have the problem wherever you will go, be it the Baltic, the High North, uh, the Suez, uh, um, Strait of Hormuz or Malacca, wherever you go, the missile threat will be such that you might need another vessel to accompany you if things turn bad. And that is a result of you know, the lack of money, the lack of foresight, and this idea in the German Navy also that of how, how they perceive a balanced Navy. Because uh, they, the German Navy and the Ministry of Defense with it, of course, has a different perspective of what they perceive as a balanced Navy. Whereas many other countries look towards look having a large flat deck of some sort. Even Portugal is looking at that and other states in South America and in the Middle East having some kind of LPD or so on, LHD. Germany said, no, uh, we, we have different priorities and we will focus our projection capability. We will rest in this in these ships so they have them now they will do a, they will do the best they can with those ships uh and but i think they are um it, it shows that we need to link, think a long term in terms of naval <clears throat> procurement and really hedge against possible challenges of the future and um so that that would be my take on the F-125. There is a very good article or a, a, a chapter on the ship in, what is it called? Uh, the World Naval Review, Con edited by Conrad Waters. So if the reader wants to look that up, and I think it's the, it's the 2018 edition. Yeah, that's what it is. And there's a fine chapter on that ship in there, and it explains how that came about. Do you forecast in a similar problem for MKS-180? No, I don't. Getting briefly back to your question of, of, of multi-mission capabilities. Yes, the F-25, the problem is it does not have the spare space, the, the, the additional space to really put uh, you know, more air defense capabilities in there are really upgraded to such an extent that it can, in my opinion, maybe industry will prove me wrong. I'm, I would like to see it, but to really put more capability on there that it could hold its own in a highly contested environment, and particularly against air threats. So it cannot provide air defense cover for any other vessels. Uh, MKS-180, which will then become or has become F-126, is a different kind of ship. Uh, they, from the beginning on, they really said, okay, this needs to have warfighting capabilities. Uh, it has to be able to conduct uh, the full range of capabilities from a German point of view, of course. Again, the focus is very much on uh, survivability. I mean, German build some of the sturdiest warships. It has ice class, I think 1A or whatever this, um, the ice, I can't think of it now, but it has an ice class that can actually go up in, in the high north, can operate operate in those areas as well, which also shows the intention of the German Navy in the future area of operation, uh, which past ships have not been able to go there. We'll have a, a, a comprehensive combat uh, suit on there. It will have weapon suits, so it will be more capable. On the other hand, it will be a very large ship. 
larger than the current F-125. And surprisingly, again, the air defense capabilities rest, well, the sensors are very good, but the air defense capabilities in terms of missiles will rest on the evolved Sea Sparrow Missile 2, so the newest version of that quad packed probably in and so four missiles per vertical launch system but still it's not all the other ships globally or most ships of that size western warships be it the japanese be it the american be it the the, the south korean uh also the europeans uh, the other states in europe all have a standard missile in there so uh, that again shows that that is not a focus of the german navy of course missiles are expensive to buy so and one last point that um, if, if you can if that I would like to add the other ships you mentioned at the beginning are not necessarily multi-purpose surface combatants in my opinion especially if you look at it let's say the british daring class you know with a, a fine ship but it was designed and developed to conduct air defense for the carrier strike groups. And it has a very limited, like many other ships in Europe, a very limited anti-surface uh, um, warfare capability in terms of harpoon and, you know, your helicopter, of course, relying on the carrier to do the to do the work. But so, you know, that capability cannot really and cannot really be expanded to such a degree. And the, the Royal Navy there also has has or the government i should say has also not provided funds to really uparm those ships the nansen class the uh, the norwegian frigate is a relatively small frigate for that area it's all you know it's also designed to operate among the fjords and among the littoral space along the norwegian coast um so that is also something that uh, we have to keep in mind but it also has a very small missile ca- um missile magazine capability with only 8 cells and uh, so very few missiles. So there are some limitations to the other ships as well, where I would not say you can necessarily compare them because they're also designed. But um, in general, you're right that the, that the German F-125 is, a, is to a certain extent one of a kind in Europe, if you will, if you compare it to other states. Thanks. Uh, we'll get back to the magazine depth question in just a minute. But it's, you mentioned this earlier when you discussed the Belgian and the Dutch and uh, why they chose to focus on what they had focused on. Has there been any attempt at apportioning roles and responsibilities from a NATO perspective that would better inform these procurement plans? Um, There's always the effort to streamline, to lose redundancies and duplications, and that has been going on for decades, if you will, within the NATO framework to really try to organize uh, the capabilities to such an extent that it's are that they are best served that you uh, that they're efficient and effective that however always stops there where national interests come into play uh and what i mean by that is that nato is an alliance of nation states and therefore um within nato the states have different perspectives on how much they want to follow to what degree i should say they want to follow uh, NATO guidelines in terms of procurement and capability development. During the Cold War, of course, the pressures were higher and greater, and uh, many states adhered more so to those NATO guidelines than they might today. But there are also examples of for, or the Dutch Navy during the 1980s that also feared that it would become the Royal Navy, namely limited to ASW operations in the high north or North Sea, I should say North Sea and and, and Norwegian Sea and not be able to uh, operate globally anymore. And there was a pushback by the Navy and the Navy made its case 
uh, heard among politicians that it still need to be a globally operating navy, uh, being able to deploy deploy to its overseas um, possessions. Thank you, overseas possessions. That's the exact territories, overseas territories that it would be able to do that, and they succeeded in remaining an expeditionary oriented navy which nowadays has very few escort vessels uh, several large um, projection vessels if you want to call it that and submarines uh, if the if they had been okay with that in the 1980s been being relegated if you will to to the north sea and the and the channel and the and the norwegian sea maybe this the the, the um, dutch navy would look very the royal dutch navy would look very different today what i'm trying to say is that yes there are efforts in in developing uh, more comprehensive um capabilities within nato uh and uh, delegating um the the requirements to a better better degree um but in terms of procurement that is a very i would be very careful in in, in finding causal or, or emphasizing too much or stressing too much the 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 connection between NATO, the NATO requirement and then the actual capability that that is being um, acquired, procured, and 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 so on. There are of course several examples. The focus now being on the ASW and the rush towards having ASW capabilities. That is of course something that is also uh, a consequence of NATO's refocusing and uh, readiness. And then so there are those those um, those. Um, that it is an influence on how states um, build and fashion and deploy and um, um, entertain and, what, and their navies. But I would not, um, I would be careful of, of carrying that too far. We're returning, there, there's a, there's a uh, how should I say, for many years, there has been this idea of niche specialization also within NATO. So small states bonding together, uh, focusing on those small capabilities that they can afford, be it mind warfare, mind and countermeasure, um, uh, you know, uh, things like that. But now we realize in the current um, security environment that the Baltic states with their focus example, just an example of Baltic states with their focus on mind countermeasure will not help them in in a in a crisis crisis situation because they have no means to defend themselves or to establish maritime domain awareness and or recognize maritime picture and so on so uh, my argument always is you need to have a certain amount of baseline capabilities offensive and defensive capabilities uh in addition to your niche niche spe specialization um um, and the same goes for um, for also the the states in in the Black Sea, you know, Romania, Bulgaria in particular, who currently, for several reasons, um, have difficulties of modernizing the naval forces. Uh, now have procured um, uh, ocean-going patrol vessels um, or offshore patrol vessels (OPVs), and uh, but also have very limited offensive and defensive capabilities. So this niche specialization has its limits in my and states have to do more and they have to find maybe not symmetric but asymmetric <laughs> ways of of using technology and, and investments to to further the, uh, their capabilities and sorry and maybe one one more point that that comes to mind is of course redundancy you need numbers you know you need numbers and you need a certain amount of critical mass so that is important
Thanks. So you uh, mentioned magazine depth before, and one of the interesting differences between navies I see in Asia and Europe is magazine depth. So mm -hmm. Europeans continue to roll out frigates and destroyers that have comparatively small numbers of VLS cells compared to Asian counterparts. I'm thinking of the Republic of Korea, China, Japan. Is that yeah. calculation based on threat assessment, or is there a procurement challenge with getting the missiles, or is it something else that I'm missing? No, you're not missing anything. It's, I think it's it, it was a threat perception when those ships were built. Those ships were built and designed in the 1990s and 2000s, so the threat perception was, was different than it is now. <laughs> That's the one reason, and just to keep it short. And the second reason is, of course, um, um, is also money. Missiles are very expensive. They're very, very expensive. Uh, if you have it, they have to be certified. You know, you have to. Uh, they cost a lot of money, and they're not readily readily available either. It's not that you can. It's not like you know, um, artillery shells that you can just you know get in, in in large numbers. It takes time to actually you know um, procure them and and build them. So that is really something that European navies uh, lack the magazine depth. In my opinion, there are a couple of good pieces also in SimSec on, on, on the uh, European Battle Force missiles. And I'm just writing a piece on that as well um, that I where I see a, a missile gap, if you will, in terms of offensive and defense mis missile capabilities uh, among European navies. Thanks. I'm going to shorten these last couple of questions up here because yeah. we're running out of time. But uh, what's PESCO yeah. and then do you think that helps or hinders the procurement process? Uh, PESCO is the, the, the permanent structure corporation of the e European Union. Uh, was already introduced, many people don't know, in 2009. Some people don't know the, in, during the Lisbon Treaty uh, and is designed to deepen defense cooperation between the EU members those EU members that are willing and able, so you know you're not forced to cooperate. And it was established in 2017. Uh, they have several projects. I think it's currently we had 34 different projects uh, within this uh, PESCO initiative um, are, that are underway, and I think another 12 or 13 are are already agreed upon. It will be um, commenced soon, and seven of them are maritime, um, including semi-autonomous mine countermeasure harbor protection, maritime surveillance, and, and things like that. Uh, I think um, it will uh, help um, procurement and stream and, and uh, um, becoming more effective and more efficient. Um, uh, I mentioned Italy and France before. They have teamed up now on the joint venture called Naviris. The shipbuilders of those two states have teamed up to build uh, the European Patrol Corvette, which is also one of those PESCO projects. So this European Union project says we need a patrol corvette. And those two in Italy is in lead and France is there too. So you always have lead nation and then um, participants in those projects. I think it has uh, will have long-term effect and positive effect on procurement. Interesting, uh, an interesting point not I made, but Frank Hoffman made in a recent podcast is actually that if you look at those capabilities, all of those or many of those capabilities are defensive. And that is interesting with Americans looking at offensive capabilities, what do you that the Europeans are more looking at defensive um, capabilities, especially European Union, you don't have any PESCO project for long range strike missiles in there, but rather for harbor protection, maritime surveillance. Thanks. Do you think that's a political consideration or a capabilities consideration? 
Oh, oh, definitely both, but of course also a political consideration. I mean, offensive capabilities, uh, there are only two states in Europe that have uh, long-range strike capabilities in terms of cruise missiles. That's France and Britain and the UK. And uh, those are very limited as well compared to to the US. So you only have, I don't know, only the French have surface combatants that can launch cruise missiles and the UK only have currently uh, only submarines, a couple of them. So um, the, it, that has a very, it, because it's escalatory and it has an escalatory potential and offensive uh, long-range strike capabilities in Europe um, have a political dimension, yes. But also cost a lot of money. <laughs> you know, don't get me wrong, they cost a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have any uh, final thoughts before I close it out? Uh, well, in general, I think there is a, a, a focus now on, on, on readiness. Uh, I think the European defense industry is 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 ch- challenged through, through because of the current situation. Also, COVID plays a, a, a an important role in that. You will see even more harmonization um, and rationalization measures within the European defense industry. Germany is an example of that, where actually now the shipyards are, are consolidating um, after many years. Um, it, it will be a very competitive, re- remain a competitive field. But one important and interesting point is that the U.S. is actually now, um, for the first time, I, I, I think since nine, since 1890, will the U.S. Navy um, build and procure a vessel, a warship, one of its principal warships based on a foreign design. Um, in principal warships, I don't mean, you know, so we're really talking about frigates and destroyers and so on. So that's a very interesting point that actually the U.S. is looking to Europe for technology, similar to the Norwegian strike missile and others. And at the same time, you have several European states that are looking very closely to cooperating with the U.S. Interesting times um, and a lot of challenges ahead. Well, thank you, Jeremy. That's all the time that we have for today. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Jeremy Stowes. Jeremy, where can we find you online and what are you working on next? Well, I'm working currently, I'm working on a study on uh, the future of European naval power. So where that's heading in terms of the, uh, also in light of the great power competition and the high-end challenge that will be uh, working uh, with the Center for Maritime, uh, sorry, Center for Military Studies in Copenhagen. Um, so that will be published sometime this fall. And then I will at some point uh, start um, working on my, uh, rewriting my PhD so that I can publish that. So that's also will be work in progress for probably 2022. I uh, hope to see that published. You can find me on Facebook and on, on Twitter. Uh, our my center, the Austrian Center for Intelligence, Propaganda, and Security Studies, also on Twitter and on Facebook, and our homepage, and of course, uh, my friends at ISPK, um, also the Sea Power series. Uh, you can find them on Twitter. Always uh, the leading leading thinkers up there in in, in Kiel, on on in in on con- in continental Europe on naval matters. So yeah, okay. happy if anybody reaches out and happy to to discuss naval matters and maritime security. Well, thank you again, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Sea Control is produced by Keegan Ingersoll.